0: I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. Hollywood. The name alone captivates the hearts of millions around the globe. The movie stars, the glamour, seeing Hollywood magic come to life through the lens and onto the big screen... The legendary Hollywood Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard. Even the iconic Hollywood sign nestled in the Hollywood Hills is a welcoming, you have arrived. But what if I shared with you that the original Hollywood, the birthplace of moving pictures, was actually 3,000 miles away? Well, here to take us on this journey is Tom Myers, a leading historian on Fort Lee, New Jersey's claim to fame as the city who launched filmmaking. Tom is founder of the Fort Lee Film Commission and executive director of the soon to open Barrymore Film Center. And he's here to share some interesting facts surrounding the birthplace of moving pictures and the silent film era, also known as the age of the silver screen. Tom Myers, welcome to On Cue.
1: Thank you, Chris. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Tom, I've been wanting to get you on On Cue for a while. First of all, I've shared, let's say, we go back many, many years. And you have regaled me with stories of Hollywood, but not the Hollywood out here in California, the original Hollywood where the film industry really started. Here's a little trivia for you. Let's go back to 1887, okay? Not 1987, but 1887. There's a man by the name of Harvey Henderson Wilcox. He owned a ranch west of Los Angeles. His wife called the ranch, believe it or not, Hollywood due to it being located in or near what was then called Holly Canyon. Now, this was sparsely populated back then, Tom, probably a lot of tumbleweeds, and yet, 3,000 miles away, on the opposite end of the coast, a new industry was beginning to unfold in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Now, you were raised in Fort Lee. You were born in Fort Lee. Where did your passion for this early era of filmmaking begin?
1: A combination of a lot of things. My grandmother, who was still alive until 1971, I was born in 61, so I remember hearing stories from my grandmother. When she was a kid, she was an extra in films. They used to close down the schools, and kids would get a dollar a day to be extras. And by the time she was a teenager, her father would walk her up to the uh, El Claire studio, which is a French studio in Fort Lee then, and she began her work as a film cutter. And then years later, when the industry went west, she worked in the film labs that still were in Fort Lee, my Grandfather, her future husband worked in the vaults of Fox Studio. His father, my great grandfather, and his brother worked for Paragon Studios.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, you know, well, first of all, the genetics, it's there in your blood, you know, with your family history. And okay, so Fort Lee could really be considered maybe the first backlot?
1: First back. Lot, and then when the studios came they built their own backlots. But yes, that's how we came to be. And Fort Lee was a resort community in the nineteenth century, so it was very tough to farm in Fort Lee, because if you, to this day, if you stick a shovel in the ground, you're going to hit the Palisades, <laughs> we're sitting on top of the Palisades. So uh, uh, my grandfather's father had a farm where the bridge is, but it was subsistent. They'd grow just to feed themselves. Um, so uh, they basically made money by catering to the New York tourist trade. Believe it or not, in the 1880s and 90s, uh, they used to have ferries come over from New York, and they'd have the people of wealth they would come here and they'd recreate here they were fancy hotels on the palisades they'd rent horses a lot of painters with landscape painting here on top of the cliffs so people made their living from the tourist trade and when the movie industry came it was really in the beginning they came for a day and if the movie people wanted to rent a horse people in fort lee'd rent them a horse so a lot of towns and cities didn't like actors or movies but fort lee welcomed them and it was a huge boon to the economy so everybody who was living in Fort Lee in those days when the studios came, if they wanted work in the studios, they can get work in the studios. So in this amazing short period of time, that certainly economically benefited this
0: town. Well, you know, there's the old expression, all roads lead to Rome. But I think right. in this case, all roads lead to Fort Lee. Example, there's an iconic photo of an actress, silent film era, dangling right. off a cliff. And I think it yeah. was in Fort Lee. But no, I never knew this, that Fort Lee actually coined a very popular expression. We've all read a book where we say, oh, my God, that was such a cliffhanger. Or we see a film, oh, my Lord, that was such a cliffhanger of an ending. Cliffhanger actually originated in Fort Lee. Am I correct?
1: That's correct. In 1914, Pearl White came to Fort Lee and made, I think it was the most successful movie serial of its day, The Perils of Pauline. These were multi-part serials where people went back each week to pay a nickel and see if Pearl survived the last week's epic disaster. And it was done with Hearst newspapers, so they would have a newspaper uh, write articles about the serial, then you'd go see the film. So there was a lot of interesting marketing there, and Pearl White became this huge celebrity that production still, which we took as our logo, is actually from another film, House of Eight, uh, that was made in 1918. Uh, many of our films were shot in Cliffhanger Point. I was born within two blocks of that site, and I still live within two blocks of that site and been up there many times. And it looks very much the same as it did, except now you could see the George Washington Bridge in the distance. But you can get the feel of her being there. And that film, when we called the Library of Congress years ago, about if that film existed, they said the only existing print of House of Hate was in the Moscow Film Archive in Russia. So we met their archivists from that archive in a Saddle film festival in Portonone, Italy, in 2004. And they sent us a video transfer of the film, which is brilliant. We hope to get the actual film back. But they told us the reason that they had that film was because this famous Soviet director, Sergei Eisenstein, loved Pearl White. So he imported her films and he would cut out any supposed propaganda. Pearl was waving an American flag. That got cut out. The English intertitle cards were removed and they put Russian language intertitle cards in there. But the only reason we have that film today is because of Sergei Eisenstein, which is amazing, the reach of the American film industry as early as 1914. It was really going around the world. And Pearl, in many respects, was the first international star
0: well, so I have a question. Was Pearl the one dangling from the cliff?
1: Yes, she was. She did all her own stunts until the 1920s. Never made a film in Hollywood.
0: Where were the stunt people? Well
1: oh, that was a way before, you know, your father started out as a stuntman. But in those days, you know, it was early days of cinema and you did a lot of them did their own stunts. And a lot of them came from vaudeville or Pearl had a background in circuses. So she was very able to do her own stunts tragically in the 1920s uh, she stopped doing those stunts in the early 20s and nobody knew it because they still sold her as doing her own stunts they were doing a scene in New York a very dangerous scene and the stuntman dressed up like her was killed and they finally found out she wasn't doing her stunts but She retired in the mid-20s, and she's one of my favorites.
0: Well, I have a whole new respect for the word cliffhanger, and I hope anybody listening to this podcast, which I hope is many, many, many people, the next time you hear that word cliffhanger, you know where it originated. But before we move out to Hollywood, Thomas Edison, who we know as the inventor of the light bulb, also invented the movie camera. So would you say he was one of the primary motivating forces in the film industry getting its start?
1: He was the father of the American film industry. Now, you have to realize that until World War I, the French were way ahead of us. I mean, whether it was Gaumont or the Lumière's or then Alice Guy blache I mean, Alice herself was doing synchronized sound films as early as 1902, color films. The first narrative filmmaker was Alice Guy in France. But the French knew one thing, that the biggest audience for film, the biggest ticket-buying audience, was in America. So they started building studios in the center of production in America, which was then Fort Lee. So we had so many French residents in Fort Lee by 1912 that there was a French-language newspaper. We had two huge French studios, at Claire and Solak. But Thomas Edison definitely was the father of the American film industry, and he developed the first studio in 1893, the Black Mariah in West Orange, New Jersey.
0: Did he live in Fort Lee?
1: No. He was the Wizard of Menlo Park. He developed the light bulbs in Menlo Park. Then he moved his laboratory to West Orange. And anybody in New Jersey or in the New York area needs to go and see that laboratory. It is amazing. I mean, his lab coat's still hanging there. But they have a really? replica of the Black Mariah, which was basically a tar paper studio when you push it around a circular railroad track and the roof would open for sunlight. And I believe in one of your dad's films, Abbott and Costello Meet the Keystone Cops, they actually have a mock up of that Black Mariah. <laughs>
0: Now, Fort Lee it just fascinates me because it's right over the bridge from New York City. Yep. So way back then, before the cars, the building boom, population growth, this suburban area was also this prime location for the silent westerns. I mean, not only westerns, but it seemed as if you could mm-hmm. be anywhere in the world, and it was all right there in Fort Lee. So Fort Lee really was the first backlot for the studios of that time. And you said that was it Carl Emley with Universal who built the first studio there? Yes,
1: Carl Lemley is one of my favorites for many reasons. Uh, Lemley was an immigrant from Germany. He came to Wisconsin. He was, I believe he was a haberdasher. And when he saw you know, this new industry crop up, he wanted to get involved. So he started like a lot of the studio owners started. Uh, they were ex- exhibitors. But then he decided he wanted to make his own film. So he came to Fort Lee in 1909 with his independent motion picture company, Imp, and he made Hiawatha. And when you go to Universal, Universal considers that their first film he bought uh, the old champion studio which was the first studio built in fort lee he bought that in 1912 and that became the first home for universal and then by 1914 he built the largest studio in the country at that time uh, universal on main street and that's when the chamber of commerce in hollywood started beckoning him he fought very hard against edison edison had the patent and you ought to be a member of the motion picture alliance there to be allowed to make films like Griffith and Biograph. They were allowed to make films. They paid Edison the patent. But people like William Fox and Carl Lemley, they were independents so and they didn't want to pay this. Thomas Edison sent armed Pinkerton agents to Fort Lee hunting for Carl Lemley. And in his unpublished autobiography, he talks about him and his partner with cans of film in a cellar in Fort Lee trying to evade capture by Edison thugs. So it was a very dicey period of time. Uh, Lemley funny. ended up prevailing there. And I have to tell you, uh, there's a documentary, if you get a chance to see it, it's not on DVD. It's called Lemley, and I saw it at the Jewish Community Center in uh, New York City on the Upper West Side in January. And it's a brilliant documentary because Lemley was originally from Germany, so by the time he was in Universal in the 1930s, and even after he lost the studio after 36, I think, he started using the same techniques he fought Edison with to prevail by fighting the United States government to allow him to bring refugees in from Nazi Germany. And when I saw this documentary, at the end of the documentary, the filmmaker asked everybody whose family was brought out of Germany and saved by Carl Lemly stand up. Three-quarters of that audience stood up, and I had such new respect for this man because he was so much more than a filmmaker, and he used the techniques of fighting Edison to bring people out of Nazi Germany. It's just a brilliant story, and that's one of the many reasons Universal is my favorite studio that came out of Fort Lee, on top of which I grew up and still live on the block where the Champion Studio was on 5th Street in Fort Lee, where Universal started. So it's, it's very interesting.
0: I read in a New Jersey newspaper a piece, I think it was by Lisa Rose, that back in 1912, when Hollywood, they say, had more cattle than cameras, Fort Lee was right. the center of the cinematic universe. So what was the motivating factor with studios now deciding to leave Fort Lee for the West Coast? Why didn't they just stay in Fort Lee and thrive?
1: Well, one of the reasons they came to Fort Lee originally was that people wanted the industry here. But more importantly, we were in close proximity to Broadway and the actors and actresses could come here, which is a big factor. And they get here relatively easy by the ferry. They had their problems with Edison, but what really did it, it was a combination of factors by World War I. The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce was luring these studios out there. I mean, people like Griffith started shooting in the winters in, in, in California as early as 1911, 1912, but they always came back to Fort Lee. But by World War I, there was a coal shortage, and these old studios in Fort Lee, I mean, they were new at the time, state of the art. Uh, they were big, 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 and it took a lot of coal to heat them in the winter. The Hudson River froze over, so it was very difficult to get ferries over here. And there was the beginnings of the flu epidemic, and the vestiges of Edison giving them a hard time, and the beautiful weather and lots of land. And one example is Lemley. He built the largest studio in America in 1914 in Fort Lee, but then he shot there up until 1916, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, did the interiors there. But at the same time, he got this sweet deal from uh, California, Los Angeles, to so much land he could incorporate as a city, and that's where Universal still is today. So Lumley was the first major studio to go west. They kept their property in Fort Lee until 1931. He leased the studios in Fort Lee, first to Sam Goldwyn, who had his first studios here before he went west, and then to uh, Louis Selznick, David O. Selznick's father, who ended up controlling all the studios in Fort Lee from 1920 until 1925. So it was basically those combinations that pretty much killed Fort Lee as a production center in those days of World War I.
0: Let me ask you a question, because I know there's always been so many different stories, discrepancies. For instance, I heard that D.W. Griffith had decided to go out West to do an epic silent Western and he packs up the crew, packs up the cast himself. You know, they're on a train headed for, uh, I think it was Arizona. Right. And it was a flood that prevented them from actually getting off that train in Arizona. So they had to continue on to Los Angeles, which is where they did get off. And they're kind of the the, the birth of Hollywood. Uh, so many could say that, well, if they had been able to get off the train in Arizona, uh, Hollywood could have definitely been in Arizona.
1: Oh, Hollywood could have been in a lot of places. I mean, Florida was vying for it. I mean, and they were doing shooting in Florida. I mean, Oliver Hardy, I think, made some of his first films in Florida. In Arizona, there was a lot of things. DeMille went out west, and, I mean, you've been there, and I've been there. Hollywood Heritage, that building, Mm -hmm. a good friend of mine, Stan Taffel, was involved with that. That was originally, I believe, on the Paramount lot for years. They moved it over there. But that was like for the barn. It was one of the first studios in Hollywood, Uh, so it's an amazing place to visit. But, yeah, it was a lot of factors that led to the centralization of the industry in California. And probably
0: the weather, too. The weather had a lot to do with that because they had sunshine, you know, 365 days out of the year. But so the movie industry has packed up and it's now moving out west. Well, mm-hmm. there's a lot of silent actors who did transition into the talkies, uh, such as Mary Pickford. Dorothy and Lillian Gish. Right. But there were some actors, though, that didn't cut it. I think it was at John right. Gilbert, uh, Norma Talmadge. Yeah, John Gilbert G- with
1: MGM. Uh, there was a lot of yeah. actors with Gilbert. That's an interesting story. He was Garbo's love. And uh, I think he's, at some point I read the story where he said the wrong thing to Louis B. Mayer, and Louis B. Mayer took no prisoners and decked them in a men's room. So,
0: oh, no. Which uh, oh, you
1: know, so was pretty much the kiss of death in Hollywood. The last person I would hit in those days would have been Louis B. Mayer.
0: There's a very famous story of Louis B. Mayer upon his death. The funeral was held over in Beverly Hills, and some reporter had asked one of the celebrities, you know, I hear that you hated Louis B. Mayer. Why are you here at his funeral? And he looked up at him and said, I just want to make sure he's dead. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories about Louis B. Mayer.
1: There's another story, Red Skelton, apparently at the Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, at his funeral, uh, there was a ton of people and they interviewed Skelton. He goes, well, you give the public what they want, you'll always get a crowd. <laughs> but the, the one thing about those guys, you know what? I mean, I've heard a lot of things about Louis B. Mayer, but I have a lot of respect for those guys because they were tough customers. They, they created an industry, a lot of them were Jewish immigrants, they couldn't get into a lot of different uh, industries. Um, they came from backgrounds like Louis B. Mayer, who was basically a junk man, and the Brothers Warner from Pennsylvania, everything else. And the one thing about them, you could call them pirates or whatever, they loved film. And I think they created something we can't replicate today. Uh, we have as many good actors, we probably have more Good actors and actresses today than ever before and technicians and everything else. The missing ingredient is the studio system and people complain about it. But I think the studio system produced so many good actors and actresses and so many classic films. They
0: created them, you know?
1: Yeah, and there are good films today, but it's just that mm-hmm. they don't have the, the support of a studio system. And I think that's an important missing ingredient.
0: Well, I agree with you. You know, I absolutely 100 percent agree with you. But I'm not ready to leave Fort Lee yet because I'm just fascinated no, with Fort no, Lee. No, 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 no. Well, there was just... a lot
1: of action in Fort Lee after the industry left.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, was it a fast migration out to the West Coast or was oh, yeah. it a slow process? It was
1: pretty quick. Uh, the last major production was in 1925, but by that time, the action was in California. Our last hope was Louis Selznick. He was a vastly interesting guy, David O's father. He just ended up one day walking into World Studios in Fort Lee and making believe he worked there. <laughs> you got to give these guys credit, making believe yeah. he worked there. And, and and he made himself a career. And at, by the 1920s, he owned all the studios in Fort Lee, including, I mean, running, renting the old Universal. And he created another star who died way too young, Olive Thomas. She was a Zigfield Folly star. He made this beautiful film. Now, we're on the eve of uh, the 2020s, which I like to think the second-roaring 20s. And uh, he made a film in 1920 in Fort Lee called The Flapper with Olive Thomas. It was the first film that showed a woman as a flapper with that bobbed hair and very provocative in its day, you know. And it was a great film. Unfortunately, she died very young. And her ghost is said to haunt the New Amsterdam Theater because she was a Ziegfeld Folly star over there. But he made a lot of good films. But after the studios left and he died, what you had left in Fort Lee was a lot of empty buildings, some of which blew up. Um, some of them became film storage facilities. A lot of them became film laboratories. Um, are they
0: still around?
1: One building is still around uh, and was a film storage uh, facility for decades. Uh, it was built by Jules Brulter, who was a real cinema pioneer. He worked with uh, Eastman Kodak, and that building was built in 1922. It's still here. Some of the buildings are still here. Um, but uh, the old Universal, Universal sold that building on Main Street in 1931 to Herbert J. Yates, who was head of Republic Studios. He also owned Consolidated Film Industries. So he bought that property and turned it into a film laboratories in 1931, and that was there until 1961. And the interesting thing is that most studios in Hollywood from 31 to 61 sent their negatives to Fort Lee to CFI, Consolidated, and that's where they made thousands of prints. And they also had a gelatin lab where they produced beautiful lobby cards and one-sheet posters for the lobbies of cinemas. And uh, that was a 24-7 operation with three shifts. And they were trucks that would go in and pick these films up from the vaults and distribute them around the country into American installations across the world. My mom and my grandmother worked there. My mother and my uncles worked there. In fact, uh, my mother worked there until I was born. And so that was very big. In terms of actual shooting studios, uh, Oscar Michaud was a pioneer African-American filmmaker. Uh, He came to Fort Lee in 1920 and made a film called Symbol of the Unconquered. Now, D.W. Griffith made lots of Civil War dramas in Fort Lee, but he didn't make *Birth of a Nation* here. He made that in California. You know, *Birth of a Nation* was an amazing popular film. It was very uh, technically, it was brilliant. But you know, Griffith was from the South, so you know he made the Ku Klux Klan look like heroes, and he was guilty about that. Not long after that, he made a film called *Intolerance*. Oscar Micheaux, a black filmmaker, comes to Fort Lee, decides to go into one of the studios, make Symbol of the Unconquered, where he depicts the Klan riding and making them the bad guys. This guy had guts to make a film like that. Uh, He couldn't do it in Hollywood because of discrimination. But he came to Fort Lee, and on and off he was in Fort Lee shooting films, including the first uh, all-talking African-American musical, The Exile in 1931. He made films here until 1948, and I'm very proud of the people of Fort Lee because he couldn't make films in Hollywood because of discrimination, but he could do it in Fort Lee. And I always say the people of Fort Lee, the only color they recognized was green. If you had money, they would they would do anything for you. So if Oscar Michel wanted to rent a horse for a movie, sure, Oscar. And uh, so it was a very accommodating place. So we had other film companies come in who made Italian-language films for you know, Italian uh, people in urban areas in America, and uh, um, Yiddish films for uh, people who are Jewish in the urban areas. Uh, we had the Mormons come into Fort Lee and make a film about the life of Christ. Uh, and then we're just learning that there were some sci-fi pictures made, some cheapies made in Fort Lee into the 1950s, including uh, one of my favorite horrible but great films, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> If you look at that film, most of the exteriors are from Fort Lee. So we're still learning about what was made here after the exodus to Hollywood.
0: When the exodus was happening from Fort Lee to Hollywood, was this still during the silent era period or were the talkies? Oh,
1: yes. Yeah, it was a silent well, era. Well, so
0: many people think that the jazz singer by Al Jolson was, of course, right. the first talkie. And it right. wasn't. It was a fireman uh, industrial talkie, I believe, that was made in Fort Lee. Uh, through the fire department? I
1: don't know that. I know the first, for our money, the first, really, you want to go back to, it was really a woman. And that's the interesting part of Fort Lee. When the industry was here, it was a real era where women could get in the industry. I mean, there's a, there's a silent film that's still available called The Girl's Folly. I believe it was made in 1917 out of the Paragon. And it's about a girl who goes from the farm to the city to get into the movie industry. And there's a scene outside the studio on John Street where you have hundreds of people going to work in the morning, you see inside them moving sets. You see overheads of crews working on different sets. And you see a door open, and you have all these women cutting film. And it's an amazing period of time where you had women involved in production. One woman owned her own studio, produced, wrote, and directed hundreds of films. And that same woman, Alice Guy, when she was in France, was the first person, that woman, the first person to make a narrative film. Because remember, in the 1890s, Edison was making epic films like The Sneeze. And I tell people, what do you think that was about? Followed up by the kids. What was that about? (laughs) Alice, (laughs) father was a bookseller, so she was very literate. So she started making films with a story uh, way before Edison when he did the great train robbery uh, in Jersey. So I see that as a very good thing to be proud of in Fort Lee, that it was open to women and not so much so when the industry went west.
0: You know, Tom, you need to be on a lecture tour You are so fascinating. I am just like captivated with all the stories. You created the Fort Lee Film Commission and soon to announce the opening of the Barrymore Film Center, which is going to honor the birthplace of the American film industry.
1: Basically, the museum has a 2,500 square foot museum and uh, the doors of the cinema has an image of Buster Keaton and the cameraman behind a camera. And we have a 260 seat cinema with a pit for musicians. And we are going to have the ability to project in 70 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and 60 millimeter actual film and 4K digital.
0: If anybody wants to know more about the Barrymore Film Center, I'm going to direct them to thebarrymorefilmcenter.com.
1: Yeah, dot com or dot org. We got them both covered. It's going to be a, something for everybody, we think, from every age group. And I'm hoping that we can attract fans from uh, New York City as well as New Jersey.
0: Oh, I think that's going to gain a lot of speed, Tom, because the man behind it, yourself mainly, with the passion, the love, the knowledge that you have, I mean, it's its coming home, which, which I love. Tom, thank you so much for being on cue. What an enjoyable time with you. You are a fountain of knowledge. Let's do it again. You call me a fountain? <laughs> do I have water coming out of my ears?
1: I look like a fountain. Hour and a half on the phone and she throws me in the
0: fountain. Thanks for listening, Don Q. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Q, Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember, each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world.